We live in an age of political polarization and preference bubbles, of economic change, rising threats, and a rapidly changing world. Canada needs to stay relevant. We need more smart conversations. We need to dive into critical issues and big ideas with passion and unrestrained optimism. I'm Aaron O'Toole. Welcome to the Blue Skies Podcast. Our two nations are allies in this battle. And next year will be a turning point I know it, the point when Ukrainian courage and American resolve must guarantee the future of our common freedom, the freedom of people who stand for their values. Welcome to Blue Skies. That was President Vladimir Zelensky addressing the United States Congress just before Christmas. I wrote an essay on that appearance, Resolve for Ukraine in 2023, and that's the theme of the blue skies today. What the Western allies for Ukraine have to do to show that resolve at what is really a turning point in the war. And that's what President Zelensky was reminding his important American allies and by extension, allies like Canada. This will be a turning point. The Russians, through their dictatorial leader, Mr. Putin, are calling up hundreds of thousands of more conscripts and troops. They're hiring private militaries and armies and will make a real push because the fall was a positive extension for the war in Ukraine. A Ukrainian army, after working incredibly hard, showing remarkable courage and resilience, retook at times up to 50% of their territory that had been taken by the Russian invasion. So this will be a turning point where Putin has to justify this uh, illegal war uh, in his own population by making gains. And we're fortunate to be rejoined. One of our first uh, recurring guests here on the Blue Skies podcast, my good friend Ihor Kozak. Ihor was born in Ukraine before moving to Canada as a teenager and the first person from the fo former Soviet bloc of countries to join the Canadian Armed Forces, going to the Royal Military College, becoming an engineer, serving Canada with distinction and a major leader in some of the Ukrainian Canadian diaspora work supporting the war effort and supporting Ukrainian people. Welcome back to Blue Skies, Ihor Kozak. Thank you, Aaron, for having me. And I, I didn't get into the some of the charitable work that you've done, and I'd like to start off with that because the efforts of the community, and I wrote about this in my essay, uh, the Ukrainian Canadian Congress, the League of Ukrainian Canadians, the, the fundraising, the public outreach and appeals have been remarkable. You've been specifically uh, working as one of the lead people in a charity aimed at helping the Ukrainian army. Can you talk about what that charity is and what you've been able to provide? I've been working on multiple fronts supporting uh, Ukrainian war effort and uh, veterans and their families, not only over the past 11 months, but uh, since uh, 2014, because as we know, the Russian illegal invasion into Ukraine and occupation of Ukrainian territory, Crimea, and then portion of the Donbass took place uh, back in 2014. So by that time, Ukrainian military was in a very poor shape, and they needed uh, everything uh, that we could provide. Essentially, you have the volunteers, uh, often teenagers, uh, activists, uh, going to the front lines in the running shoes and going straight into battle with the Russian military and their mercenaries and their proxy fighters. And uh, they were just dying, bleeding to death because they had no equipment, no protective equipment, no helmets, 
notebook through us, not first aid kits. They didn't know how to uh, retreat properly from the battlefield, how to uh, uh, how to stop blood and so on. So we started working in multiple fronts, first and foremost, providing non-lethal military equipment, primarily the life-saving equipment. Secondly, we start working with uh, providing some uh, training, you know, uh, with the, using Canadian veterans who went there to uh, to assist in, in teaching uh, Ukrainians how to uh, survive on the battlefield. And then subsequently, we had to provide support to uh, veterans who are coming back, whether with physical wounds or PTSD, and to the families, especially the families of those who uh, pay the ultimate sacrifice on the battlefield. And that work continued uh, until... Uh, uh, early 2022, uh, until the full-scale Russian invasion into Ukraine took place, and obviously we needed to uh, to to triple, uh, to quadruple our efforts because of the size of the the Russian invasion and fighting and casualties. And we are fortunate enough that Ukrainian Canadian community and Canadian society at large was very very responsive, donating significant amounts of money uh, to uh, to our friends of Ukraine Defense Forces. A charitable fund and the BCU financial uh, humanitarian fund, uh, and we've been continuing this work uh, since then. We have raised today uh, just on the France and Ukraine Defense Forces funds uh, over seven million dollars, donations ranging from twenty-five, fifty dollars to one hundred forty-five thousand dollars, and every single cent is being spent on the ones that said non-lethal military equipment for the Ukrainian troops, for uh, support of the families and the veterans. And clearly now that the governments are stepping up and providing uh, that support is less critical, but still very much necessary because the fighting is going on on such a large scale and the casualty is so heavy that so much help is still required and will be required for years to come. Well, bravo Zulu, as we say in the military, well done. Uh, the, the As I said, I'm inspired by just the outpouring of support and leadership from the diaspora in Canada, but also uh, Canadians across the country stepping up to show support. And that will have to continue. So let's get an update on the war in Ukraine. In the next couple of months, we're going to be passing the one-year mark since the full-scale invasion by Putin. As I said in the intro, last fall, there was some real positive signs out of Ukraine where Ukrainian army with the support of equipment from Western allies, mainly the United States, uh, the great training and and the foreign fighters that have come, including some from my own riding in, in the Durham region that I've met and talked about, the training Canada provided through Operation Unifier and other support measures allowed Ukraine to take the momentum in the fall and regain a lot of that territory. But as President Zelensky said in Congress, this year will be the turning point in many ways. So as we begin the year, Ihor, give us the latest from the ground and why there's concern that Western fatigue could be exactly what Putin is counting on as he tries to reestablish the upper hand in this war. So as you said, Aaron, uh, so far uh, Ukraine uh, with the Western support uh, uh, had great achievements on the battlefield as, as initially the plan was uh, for about a couple by Russians uh, in a couple of weeks uh, to um, finish this war to capture Kiev in three days. It seems, you know, sounds ridiculous now, but that was the plan. And uh, as, uh, you know, as interesting as it is, you know, most of the Western analysts actually agreed with, uh, you know, with, with Russia that Ukraine didn't stand a chance of uh, sustaining a long-term war or winning, or winning this war simply because 
uh, Russian military is such a powerful uh, military, second largest military in the world, uh, and uh, Ukraine would put up a good fight, but it wouldn't last uh, uh, very long. Um, the situation has changed drastically due to the resilience of Ukrainian people and determination to defend their country. And with all the Western support that came in, Ukrainians were able to, first of all, as you said, stop Russians and the battlefield, not allowing them to capture cave and then start pushing them back. So that was the first stage. The second stage of the war was stopping Russian and the Donbass, where at one point uh, there were Russians were shooting over 80,000 artillery shells an hour. 80,000 artillery shells an hour. This is Passchendaele. This is World War One. Uh, you know, this is how the heavy fighting was. So the Russians tried to capture at least Donbass, and they were not able to do that. And then the third phase came in when the Ukrainians actually successfully launched a counteroffensive and liberated most of the eastern and uh, southern uh, Ukraine. And this brings us to this critical point in time where we are approaching a one-year mark of this large full-scale Russian invasion, and it puts Russia in a very difficult situation because uh, Putin wasn't able to, to achieve essentially anything in Ukraine, achieve any of his strategic goals. Uh, this one-year mark is coming. There's a lot of questions inside Russia from the Russian populations, from the national circles who are uh, questioning why so much money, equipment being spent, why so many Russians, over 100,000 Russians died on the battlefield, nothing to show for. The international pressure is mounting, the economy is doing very poorly, and so Putin and, uh, and his entourage, they're planning something drastic here. And what they're planning, according to the intelligence reports and, and various other sources, even open sources, they're planning to have another serious attempt to pivot here to change the course of this war. So they're planning to uh, con to have more conscript uh, coming into the battlefield, uh, about 500,000 or so. They're looking uh, at pro uh, procuring equipment from North Korea, from Iran, from other countries, and mastering all their resources in order to launch another massive uh, counteroffensive on Ukraine, possibly taking Kyiv possibly doing it also from the Belarus. We know the Belarus so far hasn't you know, entered the war, but I think you know, they've been pressured, pressured by the Kremlin to do so. So the danger is real, is that this war is not over. The Russia still has a lot of resources, and it doesn't seem as that Mr. Putin and company are willing uh, to uh, accept the defeat here. They frankly probably cannot, because that probably means the defeat of their regime. And therefore, <laughs> it's important at this point in time uh, for us here in the West to realize that this war is not uh, is not over yet, and also secondly to realize that the only way to finish this war is through Ukrainians' victory, as they say in Ukraine, peace through victory, or as President Zelensky like to say, Ukraine wants a victory, not peace, because everybody knows that any pause, any ceasefire is just going to be used by Russians to regroup and then to attack again. And therefore, it's very important for the West to continue supporting Ukraine in every way possible, but especially militarily with equipment, with ammunition. So the Ukrainians are ready for this uh, next Russian counteroffensive, and then Ukrainians can launch their own counteroffensive to liberate the entire Ukrainian territory as soon as possible. Peace through victory. Well said. Let's break it down because I'd imagine most people that will be listening or watching the Blue Skies podcast don't have the, the background you have and 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 many military or veteran or foreign affairs watchers have. You talked about 
the action in the Donbass and and Putin's attempts there. Put that in context for Canadians, because I think people don't realize there's been the phony war run for the last eight to 10 years in that region of Ukraine by Russia. Um, that's where the Malaysian airliner was shot down. The, the, these Russian fighters hiding as Ukrainians uh, because that part of eastern Ukraine, there's a lot of natural Russian speakers. And Putin has tried to use the Donbass actually as the launching pad for the wider war about, uh, against Ukraine. Talk about that region for a moment and how remarkable it is that Ukraine has been able to, to hold ground. Well, I mean, that region is, as you said, there are many Russian speakers in that region. But once again, that's being used uh, as their propaganda tool by Russians. You know, they're making these conclusions and they're trying to convince the world. And unfortunately, sometimes Western media is picking up that Russian propaganda is that simply because somebody speaks Russian uh, language as their first language or listens to Russian music uh, or goes to the Russian Orthodox Church, they necessarily support, you know, they, they absolutely have to support Putin and they want uh, to live uh, under Putin's Russian regime. That's absolutely not the case. Uh, as a matter of fact, you know, I would say at least half of probably Ukrainians who are fighting against Putin, the Ukrainian military, are Russian speakers. Uh, you know, and they certainly don't want, you know, to live in Russia. You have also uh, many Russians from Russia, the, you know, the, the ethnic Russians who are fighting against Putin as well, because, you know, Putin is not necessarily Russia. Putin is the regime that also oppresses Russia, pro, you know, uh, oppresses Russian people, um, puts them in jails, uh, does not provide uh, freedom of speech. And uh, it, it's a criminal clique that in power just using their position of power to their own advantage, getting rich while the rest of the country is getting uh, poor. This type of rhetoric is something similar to what Adolf Hitler and the Nazis uh, used when they were trying to annex some territories, whereas in, uh, you know, when they went into Austria or they went into uh, Czechoslovakia and they claimed that they need to protect the right of the German speakers uh, in, in, in that part of the world, although those rights were not threatened by any way uh, in, in, in any shape or form. Uh, the same thing is happening in Russia. So it's just a pretext. And uh, uh, Russians are using this propaganda had to be very, very careful. I mean, right now, if you look at the Donbass, the territorial defenders of Donbass, meaning the uh, men and women, uh, civilians who uh, who were just doctors, teachers, uh, drivers, uh, pizza shop uh, owners, you know, they uh, took up arms to defend their territories. You have a, and they're Russian speakers, they're from the Donbass, and they're fighting Russian forces. You're having a massive, massive uh, guerrilla warfare happening, uh, so-called behind enemy lines, who are fighting Russian forces and liberating their territory. So all in all, do not believe Russian propaganda. We had to be very, very careful with that. Yeah. And opinion polls of Ukrainians have shown that every region of the country wants to uh, not only remain Ukrainian, but have the territorial sovereignty of Ukraine respected, including in the Donbass, massive majorities uh, of folks. And the Budapest Memorandum, as you've talked about before, uh, Ihor, was the agreement between Russia and Ukraine to respect those borders in return for uh, for swapping over the nuclear arsenal. Um, what year was that agreement? And has Russia ever really respected the, that international agreement? Well, not at all. It was uh, signed right after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And that time, I would like to remind everybody that Ukraine uh, was the third uh, had a third largest uh, nuclear arsenal in the world of the United States and the Soviet Union. 
and uh, boast um, United States of America, uh, Russia, United Kingdom, and then France and China join later. Uh, that agreement, they convince Ukraine to give up their nuclear arsenal to denuclearize the world, and Ukraine is supposed to be the first step. And for that, uh, they provided uh, the agreement was signed in, in, in Budapest, in Hungary, and they agreed to provide uh, guarantees to the, to the sovereignty of Ukrainian territory, integrity of Ukrainian territory. And Russia was one of the signatories that's supposed to guarantee this. And uh, so now in 2014, we're seeing the illegal annexation of Crimea and portion of the Donbass, which is the Ukrainian territory. And uh, the Russia is the one that actually violates uh, you know, that agreement, occupies the Ukrainian territory. And frankly, uh, the West, the other signatories did very little to prevent Russia from doing this. Some sanctions were applied, but clearly not enough to stop Russia going further. And as we know now, you know, we talked in the Canadian Parliament, as you will recall, Aaron, more than once in, in, in the Defense Committee, Foreign Affairs Committee, and other forums as well that, uh, you know, being expert like myself would give briefings and we're warning, Government of Canada also spoke in Washington in Brussels, is that Russians are only using this opportunity, you know, to annex uh, Crimea and part of the West to test the resolve of the West, to test the reaction of the West, and if the Russia is not stopped at that time, they will go further. So now fast forward to uh, uh, 2022, February 24th, and we are seeing the result where we're having the as full-scale, you know, World War Type II scenario in Europe where the full-scale fight is going and thousands of people are dying and there is no end in sight. I think this whole history shows that Russia really can never be trusted, particularly under Putin and an autocratic regime, but that the only way to combat them is to call their bluff and to show resolve against their aggression because they will they will wait us out. Um, in the in the Substack article I wrote as one of the things I was watching for the new year, the resolve of Ukraine, I compared Zelensky's speech just before Christmas uh, of 2022 to Winston Churchill's address to Congress in 1941, another leader who had a united population behind him speaking to the U.S. as an important ally in a time of war. And Churchill's advice on Russia, I think, is very apropos for right now. And I included this in my essay. Churchill, in his sinews of peace speech, said, from what I've seen from our Russian friends and allies during the war, World War II, I am convinced that there is nothing they admire so much as strength. And there is nothing for which they have less respect than for weakness, especially military weakness. That was Churchill's advice about Russia uh, after having been allied to, to defeat the Nazis. So the resolve Canada has to show as part of the, the Western coalition is really the test of the next few months. We're recording this on the day that uh, Minister Anand was in Kyiv and announced 200 senator uh, civilian armored personnel carriers it highlighted the fact that Canada has committed uh, up to $5 billion in aid for Ukraine, including $1 billion for military aid, and that uh, our, our allies, including the French, uh, including um, the, the Germans, many are talking about uh, sharing tanks, uh, leopard tanks, and whether Germany would allow the re-export of uh, leopard tanks that they sold to countries like Denmark and Canada. Could they be re-exported to help Canada? 
Tell our listeners a little bit why at this point in time with with Putin bringing up hundreds of thousands of more conscripts, why tanks are going to be so critical and will really dominate headlines in the coming weeks. So it's important, Aaron, because you have to look at the context of this war. So for the first part of the war up to this point, uh, Ukrainian, you know, or up to the uh, last counteroffensive that took, took place last fall, um, Ukrainian was uh, fighting a defensive war. And uh, defensive war was to stop the Russian aggression uh, from capturing uh, the entire country, capturing capital Kiev, and destroying the Ukrainian statehood. Um, uh, and for that, to fight a defensive warfare, you need a defensive weapons. And that's why it was so crucial where in the beginning of the war, even prior to the war, uh, the British government at the time, Prime Minister Johnson, uh, provided Ukraine with uh, 3,000 Anlau uh, anti-tank uh, uh, rockets, uh, missiles, which were very effectively used. Americans provided with the Javelin anti-tank uh, missiles, with the Stinger anti-aircraft missiles. These are the systems that were effectively used to uh, uh, burn Russian air armor to stop them from advancing and capturing Ukraine. Now we are at the stage where the Russians have been stopped. We are seeing here in the Donbass, has been in the news over the past few weeks, you know, this serious fighting happening near the town of Bakhmut and Solodar. And you have to realize that here Russians, this entire, you know, mighty country is throwing everything they got into this, you know, in that one little patch of land trying to achieve victory, any victory, tactical victory, so they can show to the world and their own people, you know, that they actually are capable of achieving a victory and they're not succeeding. So, you know, the, the, from the defensive standpoint, Ukrainians are doing well and to this point, they're receiving more and more defensive weapons. Like, for example, the NASAM anti-aircraft system that Canada announced procurement of which from the U.S. for Ukraine a couple of weeks ago is very important. It's going to bring down the Russian missiles that are hitting Ukrainian town and, 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 and churches and schools and kindergartens and apartment buildings as we're seeing this horrible tragedy in the city of Dnipro a couple of days ago. So those are very important. But at this point in time, you have to ask yourself a question, how does this war end? And the question we already discussed briefly is the only way to end this war is through Ukraine's victory because Russians, the Putin's regime will not stop until they push out of the Ukraine. In order to liberate the rest of the Ukrainian territory, offensive weapons are required. You require tanks, armor per vehicles, uh, aircraft, uh, artillery that could be used for the offensive operations, such more like American HIMARS systems or uh, M777 uh, artillery pieces that three which Canada previously provided uh, and so on. You mentioned tanks. Tanks are very important because first and foremost, in order to advance, you need tanks. You know, this is just the very basic warfare here. Secondly, is because Russians are having so many tanks. And just to provide you a context before the beginning of this war, at the beginning of this war, Russians had over 10,000 tanks, mind you. Some of those tanks are very old, almost obsolete, but still they are usable and they're being taken you know, uh, from the storage, being uh, refurbished, being repaired and sent to the battlefield. Uh, over the past 10 or rather 11 months, Ukrainian burned over 3,000 Russian tanks, over 6,000 armored vehicles. Just think about the sheer numbers. So now we're hearing about the Western um, Western garments finally beginning to provide uh, or agreeing to provide tanks to Ukraine. Uh, the first announcement was made a couple of days ago by the British government, 
that they're providing 14 Challenger tanks. Uh, from the political standpoint, I think it's a big win for Ukraine, for the West, because up to this point, the Western governments were refusing to provide such offensive weapons and tanks. Hopefully, this will open the floodgate. But from the practical standpoint, you just compare over 3,000 Russian tanks were burned on the battlefield over the past 11 months. Russia still has another 7,000 or so tanks and is producing new state-of-the-art tanks in real time. And here we're getting from Britain uh, 12 tanks or 14 tanks. Uh, obviously, much more is required. You mentioned, if I believe, uh, Leopard tanks. Uh, Leopard tank would be, is considered by many experts, is the best you know, number one male battle tank. And secondly, there are so many of them. There is over 2,000 or so of them in various European countries. There, you know, uh, Canada has Leopard tanks. So if, uh, if Poland already announced they're willing to provide their Leopard tanks to Ukraine, as soon as Germany is gives a green light because they control the technology here and the right, if they give a green light, uh, those tanks will be going from Poland, Leopard tanks, and I believe from four other countries, I don't know which one, but Ukraine government announced that they have agreement with a total of five countries. We also seen in the Globe and Mail a few days ago an article uh, where advisor to the president of Ukraine stated that as soon as Germany provides that permission for the movement of those leopard tanks to Ukraine, they will be asking Canada uh, to provide those tanks as well. So I believe it is very important that the Western governments begin providing tanks and other uh, advanced uh, systems to be used for the offensive operation to liberate Ukrainian territory as soon as possible. Um, let's jump on that a little bit more specifically. You've talked about the importance of tanks and 7,000 Russian tanks still available versus, you know, a few dozen being offered up so far. I think if the Western numbers increase, um, two questions. Is the Ukrainian army equipped and trained ready to use them? Um, um, the, the army has shown remarkable resilience, so I'm sure they will get up to speed quickly. But that will uh, that will be a consideration. The other thing I'd like to ask about is I've heard various reports of some of the earlier uh, armored vehicles, the, the light armored vehicles, Canadian labs made in, in London, Ontario by General Dynamics, that what Canada has pledged, not all of it has actually shown up. In, in Ukraine. Can you talk about both things? Uh, has Canada already delivered what it committed? Because we're now committing uh, new Rochelle Senator APCs. But have we actually delivered what we, we, we pledged already? And is Ukraine ready to incorporate tanks and, and more armored vehicles into their, their war fighting machine? So there's two questions here and they're interrelated here. You, you ask a very good question, uh, whether Ukraine is ready to incorporate uh, this and, and use of this equipment and you know it, it's part of the actually Russian propaganda machine you know in Russia now spreading this propaganda around the world that Ukrainians are very ineffective in uh, in uh, using Western equipment and therefore there is no requirement providing you know further equipment because they don't know what to do with this the instructions are in English it's a different technologies and it just sits there and being burned by Russian well that's a total propaganda and, you know, it's uh, don't take my word for it. You know, look at the reports of Western governments, look at the reports of uh, experts such, you know, with whom I have a pleasure of working with, like General Rick Hillier, retired uh, Canadian legendary chief of the defense staff, or his colleague, David, you know, General David Petraeus, or General Wesley Clark, and other Western subject matter experts. As a matter of fact, 
Ukrainians are surprised everybody, including our Western, uh, you know, uh, their Western counterparts, my colleagues here in Canada, United States, how quickly they're learning, you know, Western technology. So, for example, the Patriot Defense System was just um, announced the U.S. will provide to Ukraine not too long ago. We already know that Ukrainians are already there in the United States training and talking to some of the folks who are there. They're making remarkable uh, you know, uh, uh, achievements and learning this in, 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 in a record time. So uh, from that standpoint, I do not have any concerns that Ukrainians will be able to integrate this into their, you know, all this Western equipment, into their uh, war machine and to effectively use it as the battlefield because it's already been proven over the past, you know, 11 months that not only they're learning quickly, using it effectively, they're actually teaching their Western counterparts a unique ways of using this or providing data back and you know and, and it's, it's been very very successful in terms of what canada has provided just wanted to clarify canada has not provided lav 3 armor vehicle this is something that you know expert like general hillier have been uh, advising the government of canada to do so they have not done so yet they've been providing those rochelle uh, armor vehicles which are very good you know quality armor vehicles but they do not have any armament on them so they're being using as the armored uh, personnel carriers to carry uh, troops to the battlefield from the battlefield wounded clearly saving lives a very important contributions and i know they're being very liked in ukraine but canada to date has not provided any combat vehicles whether it's lav three armor vehicles or leopard tanks but canada certainly should concern uh, doing it yeah. And let's also take on another myth that I actually see a lot of Canadian uh, veterans and, and commentators online talking about, which is our military is already hollowed out. You and I have been talking about that for many years. It's, it's been something I've been trying to fix uh, with proposing uh, solutions for procurement and other things. There's this suggestion that if we uh, give some of our labs or some of our leopards or some of our artillery pieces, uh, howitzers, to Ukraine, we then uh, are left vulnerable or we don't have the equipment to train. Um, talk about the r return on investment because, look, we, we've, as you said, we've been enemies or Russia has been a strategic threat to Canada since the beginning of the Cold War, the Iron Curtain speech that I quoted from Churchill earlier. And to see their military capacity destroyed by Ukraine so remarkably, uh, their armored division having 3,000 losses, um, the exposure of their uh, inefficiencies in terms of training, in terms of uh, artillery, these are all things that are actually long-term peace dividends for Europe and for the West by taking away the Russian capacity. And because we're not in a current uh, state of threat or war, we can always replace our stores. So I'd love you to talk about this as a military veteran yourself, uh, Eeyore, you care a great deal about the military and our, our, our uh, potential and our capacity. Uh, what do you say to those critics that say, oh, we're giving away our equipment when we have nothing and we're hollowing out our own military? Well, first and foremost, Aaron, I, you know, the most important point here to realize is that Russian threat a Russian invasion is Ukraine is not only a threat against Ukraine, it's, it's a threat uh, against Europe, it's a threat against NATO, and a threat in Canada. Let's not forget that, you know, we do have a neighbor, Russia, who has some territorial, you know, uh, 
uh, issues Canada as well, you know, in, in, in the Arctic here and uh, competing for resources. And it could be only a matter of time before uh, we have a serious issues with the, you know, with the Kremlin. Uh, unless Putin is stuck in Europe. So while uh, Ukrainians who are fighting and dying on the battlefields of Eastern Ukraine, and now they're doing so, yes, for their own uh, freedom, their own families, uh, their country, but they're also doing so, as I like to say, and I keep repeating this, for stability and security of Europe, and frankly, the entire free world. So I think we own them, you know, support, because they're doing fighting and dying, not only for themselves, and even for us as well. I think President Zelensky, in his address in the U.S. Congress was crystal clear. He stated that we do not expect Americans or Westerners to go into Ukraine, boots on the ground, and to fight and die for Ukraine. We just need you to provide us with the necessary equipment, and we will do the fighting, and we will stop the Russian machine. Putin is not going to stop unless he's stopping Ukraine. He's not stopping Ukraine. He will move into the Baltic states of Poland. And then what? Article 5 needs to be uh, triggered, and Canada would be in the war. So frankly, I think we would, you know, I would prefer our soldiers to provide that support, such as training, such as equipment to Ukrainians, as opposed to, you know, uh, being on the battlefield with Russians. The second point here to make is that the equipment we're talking about, we're not using it, you know, much of it in Canada. So we're talking about 100 LAV-3 armor vehicles. There is no way, you know, we can foresee in the foreseeable future here to use all of them. So nobody's talking about giving up all of them, but if you give out the 600, a couple hundred, you still left here with enough to, uh, you know, to be used for whatever deployments and maybe necessary in the near future. Now, I know that the leadership of the Canadian military is reluctant to agree to this uh, when they talk to uh, their political masters and probably for good reasons, because, you know, they have no confidence that uh, once that equipment is being taken from the Canadian uh, forces storage, uh, it, it will be replenished. And this brings us to the question, why not do so? You know, you mentioned that those loud three, for example, armor vehicles are being produced in London, Ontario. So you provide the older vehicles we have that we use in Afghanistan and we're not using right now to Ukraine, support the good cause, uh, help our you know NATO and our own security. And at the same time, uh, order new vehicles from the manufacturing in London, Ontario, create Canadian job, uh, you know, give this additional investment and boost to the Canadian technology. It's a win-win-win, you know, development, research and development, whatever comes, you know, from, from all that good investment. And I think it's a win-win-win situation for all. So we absolutely should do it. Yeah, we can always replace what we give to Ukraine. And more and more Canadians have to realize that Ukraine's fight is our fight. The, the risks of Putin don't disappear uh, overnight. It, he has to be uh, confronted and his, his potential for fighting wars uh, in Ukraine and around the world have to be degraded. And that's what Ukraine is doing. Going back to President Zelensky's speech, Ukrainian courage and American resolve, that is what we need to see. So final segment I want to get into with you, Ihor, because this has been a good update on uh, the state of play in, in the war as we get 2023 underway. You've mentioned many times the propaganda, the disinformation, uh, addressing a whole range of issues. And you and I have seen this for years as as we've had guests from Ukraine come to, to Ottawa. There's always trolls and people that 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 denigrate and spread lies and misinformation. Whenever I post something, 
I, I almost recently have said, look, look at the comments below this tweet if you want to understand disinformation. But I want to take on a few because I do find some people because they they're in a media bubble of social media, they only see comments from their their friends and supporters and a, a lot of conservative followers, a lot of veterans fall into these categories where they're very susceptible. Let's take a few of these on. So my essay that I wrote, Resolve for Ukraine, the first comment was from someone who says he writes for News Now Canada. He's independent media. And his only comment was, Ukraine is committing money laundering and that all of the financial support uh, and and aid given by the West is somehow uh, embezzled or directed by Zelensky and co. And that guy, I'm going to call him out. His name was Donald Smith, who claims to be a media figure. This money laundering uh, trope, that's one of the main attacks of, of RT and of, of Russian uh, Russian disinformation. So look, I mean, it's uh, as I said, Russia are using all of the tools at their disposal to attack Ukraine and to undermine Ukraine and supporting the West. Uh, propaganda, it's uh, one of the tools that unfortunately been very uh, successful because we as Westerners allow the propaganda uh, machine uh, such as uh, RT, Russia Today Television, and other such uh, network to be freely broadcast here and undermining our democracy um they're using this you know to undermine support for ukraine and they're claiming that there is some serious corruption in ukraine and everything is going sideways and the weapons are appearing in africa and other parts of the world nobody's denying that there is a corruption in ukraine there's corruption in every country you know around the world ukraine is, is, um, has problem with corruption ukrainian government ukrainian civil society you know, is fighting corruption. I've been involved myself with various projects. There are anti-corruption projects uh, in Ukraine. But the fact is, is there is no evidence whatsoever that the Western weapons, the support is going to Ukraine, is going elsewhere. I mean, there are reports from the U.S. government, from other Western governments who look into this, from agencies, U.S. government agencies like Pentagon or CAA, that absolutely found no evidence. You know that U.S. Congress is going to be looking in more detail you know, into uh, uh, where this uh, equipment is being delivered, how it is being used. But, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you know, they satisfied so far, you know, Western government, Ukrainian government satisfied Western governments with the report and the feedback. And, you know, I had an opportunity to, as you know, travel to Ukraine often, including to the battlefields and interact with the Western diplomats and the defense attache who are working right now out of Kiev and the special envoys who are handling this operation and the offices who are, you know, in the Western garments who are delivering this military aid. And once again, uh, they have no evidence whatsoever that, you know, Ukrainian military assistance is going uh, elsewhere as opposed to being effectively used on the battlefield. I think Ukrainians are being very, very careful actually to use it properly because they know if, you know, it, uh, it is something went sideways and, you know, God forbid the weapon appeared elsewhere in Africa or somewhere else, the Russians claim, uh, then, you know, the military assistance from the West would stop and they cannot afford this because they need Western military assistance to win this war. So as I said, I haven't seen any facts 
I'm sure yeah. there'll be more control, you know, coming from the West, but, you know, we shouldn't pay attention to this propaganda. Yeah, it's a life and death situation in Ukraine. And so uh, Zelensky's making sure everything gets to the front line. I'll refer some of our listeners to uh, a member of Congress, Dan Crenshaw, a Navy SEAL veteran. Um, his podcast, he had a special forces veteran on who said some of the measures have even uh, had front lines taking photographs of stinger casings and other things they use for audit purposes within Ukrainian military. What what I found uh, in the fall, you and I both attended the Rebuild Ukraine conference in in Toronto, which was incredible, by the way, talking about not only the importance of supporting Ukraine militarily, but supporting the economic strength and, and the ties between Canada and Ukraine, deepening them both during the war and already planning for a rebuilding. And the technology that Ukraine has been able to build uh, in, in the middle of the war in terms of allowing civilians to comment on uh, Russian troop movements, on countering disinformation by by letting Russian families know that Putin led to the death of of their conscripted son by by tracing some of the people killed on the battlefield. Talk for a moment about uh, just how resilient Ukraine has been from a, a technological standpoint and how that has impacted the war. Well, I think from the technological standpoint, as you said, it has been you know, it's been incredible, and, and I'm still amazed every time I go there and see what they're doing. And you know, it is not surprising because this is not just some sort of a war of a government Ukraine against the government of Russia or you know in some local area. This is a total own war of Ukrainian society for survival. So, for example, when you're talking about uh, you know Ukrainian forces right now are about seven hundred fifty thousand. Uh, people and the Ukrainian uh, Minister of Defense said they want to raise it to 1 million because that's what is required to win this war. So if you're talking about hundreds of thousands of people rapidly, you know, over, over course of you know, over two, three months joining Ukrainian forces and forming a new uh, military elements such as territorial defense to defend local areas, just regular folks, you know, going into the military. And because they had no military experience. They get a very basic training, you know, like for a couple of days, they just went to the battlefield. They just become innovative using what they knew best. So, you know, you see Ukrainian uh, uh, territorial defense force and other uh, forces of the Ukrainian defense forces are full of engineers, entrepreneurs, IT specialists, logisticians, CEOs of various companies, uh, top consultants who were extremely successful uh, in uh, in their private life. And you know, Ukraine is one of the top uh, producers of the IT products around the world. So now, because the Ukrainian society, Ukrainian country is fighting for survival, they took that innovation, ingenuity, you know, to, uh, to, to, to their military units. And they've been coming up with some amazing, uh, you know, uh, technologies where it's uh, new Ukrainian drones or producing... Uh, helmets and, and bulletproof vests uh, in Ukraine very quickly after the Russian uh, invasion or using uh, IT technologies to uh, interfere with the Russian, you know, uh, propaganda channels. I mean, they, they've been known to go into the Russian, you know, TV networks and shutting them down and delivering the truth, you know, to the families of those who died on the battlefield uh, and so on. I mean, interestingly enough, you talked about that um, I, I Rebuild Ukraine conference. One of the numbers, uh, as you will recall, 
uh, were reported is that during the time of the war, Ukrainian IT sector grew by actually 23%. Yeah. So, I mean, this is this is something remarkable, but one, once again, not surprising at all. The Ukrainians are using all the resources they have to you know create new technologies and to fight this wars, everything they got. And they're actually sharing these innovations with their Western counterparts, with Canada, with US, with other militaries, other governments. And uh, I think there's going to be good things coming out of this uh, technological advances for many, many years to come, not only for Ukraine, but for the entire free world. Yeah, no, it's remarkable. It's total war. And as you said, uh, people within society are leveraging their professional background to help the war effort. It's remarkable. Let's take on another piece of propaganda that we see. And this came on my latest tweet about about tanks um, from Randy Hillier, a former member of the provincial parliament, uh, saying that we're escalating the war and that we're warmongers. Another uh, Alex Mihailovich, uh, an apparent journalist, or at least he says he is, um, says that I'm another victim of groupthink, hashtag Canada first. This is one thing that I think is insidious in some of the kind of far right people like Randy Hillier, um, extreme right, I would say, where they seem to have bought Russian propaganda hook, line and sinker. And they're calling Ukraine and its Western allies warmongers for defending against a full invasion brought by by Putin almost a year ago. Um, And we've seen this creep into the American uh, far right as well, where they're questioning aid packages, these sorts of things. I think that's personally part of the reason why Zelensky came to Congress in a time of war to maintain that strong resolve. Talk a little bit about this propaganda line that by helping Ukrainians defend their sal- themselves were somehow warmongers. Even uh, extreme voices like Max Bernier has been have been saying this, uh, almost seeming like they're working for Putin or at least buying his propaganda hook, line, and sinker. Well, look, Russian propaganda is you know it's so primitive and it's sometimes just so ridiculous that I'm so, you know I am surprised that it actually has gets any traction here. Uh, in the last amounts, you know, many smart people, you know, like uh, who, who claim to know the topic. You know, one of the topics of the areas of the propaganda, uh, as you recall, Aaron, we talked about this before, is that Ukrainian, uh, this government, uh, this regime in Ukraine is a neo-Nazi, and uh, the president Zelensky is a Nazi. I mean, you having a, a, a Jew, you know, first, you know, a Jewish president of Ukraine ever, and the only you know the other Jewish president, the prime minister exists is in in the state of Israel, and then you having so many uh, you know Jews in the Ukrainian government, the prominent positions. Zelensky family survival of the Holocaust. His uh, grandfather and other families members fought Germans weapons in their hands and went all the way to the Berlin, and yet. Here they're calling Zelensky a neo-Nazi and the Ukrainian government neo-Nazis. And yet also some of those elements you mentioned here in the West were far right or far left or whoever they are, buying this propaganda and you know and uh, and and repeating this. You remember when the uh, head of Ukrainian parliament, speaker of parliament, Andriy Parubi, came to Canada a few years ago when you met with him in the parliament and your colleague this, you got all this typical, you know, uh, similar uh, post saying, why are you meeting with this neo-Nazi? So that's just the pure propaganda, uh, you know, and the same could be said about a war escalation. I mean, like it's, if you look what's happening, Ukraine, Ukraine was attacked by Russia. Ukraine did not provoke this invasion. You know, Russia broke every international rule that was there in place to, you know, guarantee Ukrainian sovereignty, independence. 
and now even with the back in 2014, and now with this full-scale war, you have to realize that the Russians trying to break Ukrainians back, the will of the people of Ukraine, they're deliberately, they're deliberately targeting civilian targets. Over 95% of the missiles or rockets, the you know bombs that are hitting Ukrainian towns and villages are being deliberately directed at uh, in civilian installations such as uh, apartment buildings, kindergartens, schools, hospitals. You know, as General Milley of the U.S. stated, I mean, like essentially, this is a crime against humanity. You know, and as we say, you know, this is the state-sponsored terrorism. I mean, how can you justify doing what the Russians are doing? You know, uh, uh, on purpose. Look at all the you know children who are dying. I mean, anybody who is you know who is repeating this Russian lie, I would like them just to, you know ask them to you know to pause for a moment and to concern to put themselves in the shoes on those people there. If they were living in Toronto or Vancouver or Winnipeg or Saskatchewan or you know Halifax, and with their family at night. Russian bombs and missiles are hitting, you know, their, their, their homes or their schools or the kindergartens, maternity hospitals on purpose. You're talking about the mass rapes by the Russian soldiers or the rush of Ukrainian women, Ukrainian children. I mean, it's been proven, you know, so how can you say that this war is not just? Now, you know, you know, somehow Russians are also using this propaganda to convince many people in the West that providing this type of weapons, even defensive weapons, such as anti-aircraft systems that are bringing down Russian missiles that are hitting civilian targets, is somehow this is the escalation of the war. Once again, it's the pure propaganda. The only one way to finish this war, to stop this bloodshed, to stop the innocent deaths, Ukrainian and Russians too, because those conscripts are dying for nothing as well on the battlefields of Ukraine, is for Ukraine to win this war, to push Russians out, and to bring the Kremlin to its knees. And in order to do that, the weapons are required in order for Ukraine to be able to win this war. Peace through victory. And I think the the obligation we have, not just as military veterans, you and myself, but all Canadians, when we see some of this propaganda being parroted by, by people like Randy Hillier and others, I think we have to confront it, uh, try as much as possible to to uh, tell them the truth and take them away from the misdirection of propaganda, but also challenge it so that it doesn't stay in the status quo because social media has turned our, our society and our politics upside down. And now people are just consuming um, things from their own followers and, and reinforcing their own opinions. And we have to break that down because as I wrote in my essay, Resolve for Ukraine in 2023, we have to not only maintain our commitment to Ukraine, but increase it. The the way, as Churchill said two generations ago, the Russians only respect strength. And the Zelensky speech, I think, underlined that. This next year, these next four to six months will be the turning point where, as he said, Ukrainian courage must be matched by American resolve indirectly Canadian and allied resolve. So whether it's tanks, whether it's uh, increased uh, artillery support, more training, more uh, dollars of aid and support, Ukraine's fight is our fight. Because if we, if we really degrade Putin's ability to wage war, not just in his near abroad Ukraine, the Baltics, it, it's degrading a threat to world peace 
and an established order that that Putin really because of demographics, because of his age and because of time, he needed to move now. And so this resolve that we must show is is as important as as ever. So that's what this has been focused at a bit of an update from the ground. Any final thoughts from you, Ihor, on on how we can show resolve and support Ukraine in the coming months uh, in the next year? Well, we just have to be steadfast in supporting Ukraine and Ukraine doing the fighting. They're doing well on the battlefield. You know, I travel to Ukraine often. The entire nation is determined. You know, Putin is trying to, you know, uh, hit those civilian targets, hoping that Ukrainians will go on the streets and protest against their own their own government, demanding some sort of negotiations. Obviously, that is not happening. Everybody's Ukraine talking peace through victory, and they're willing to fight till the end. Whereas I keep saying for the, you know, for their freedom, but also for security, stability of Europe and the free world, and for our Canadian values, you know, uh, democracy, the rule of law, human rights, and simply put, a better future for their children. We in the West just need to support them with additional military support, with financial support, with uh, political support. And I also again, would like to use this opportunity, Aaron, first and foremost, to thank you for your steadfast support of Ukraine as the politician, as the as a Canadian, because you've been supporting this for a very, very long time on multiple levels. I also would like to use this opportunity to thank all the Canadians, coast to coast, whose support is overwhelming. You know, you've been uh, talking here about some trolls and, and a few negative comments, you know, on your posts. I mean, that's unfortunate, but that's a, such a small uh, minority, you know, through the work uh, that you mentioned that I do a uh, non-for-profit work, where it's a charitable work, or it's, uh, you know, uh, other aspects of non-political work through the legal Ukrainian Canadians, Ukrainian Canadian Congress, or the Ukrainian World Congress here in Canada, Ukraine uh, as well. I see so much support, you know, we are receiving from Canadians, you know, financial, uh, people are writing, people are asking, people are volunteering, and those are not members necessarily of the Ukrainian Canadian diaspora. These are the people who, you know, never been to Ukraine, who frankly never knew much about Ukraine about, you know, before this, you know, full scale war started. But because of what's happening in Ukraine, because they can relate, because they can, you know, put themselves in the shoes of the Ukrainian families and the suffering they're going through, you know, that compassion is there. And this is our Canadian way. So I would like to use this opportunity to thank all of them. Uh, for their support and certainly being appreciated people in Ukraine by my friends, by my family, by my colleagues. And thank you very much for this. And I can just say that Ukraine will win and the free world will prevail. We just have to be steadfast in our approach. Slava Ukraini. Heroim Slava. Glory to his heroes. Thank you. Listen, peace through victory. This has been a great discussion, Ihor, to kick off 2023 ways that Canada continue to show our resolve, talk about the war on the ground and how tanks and other other elements of Western support will be the true turning point. But I'll reiterate it again, the courage of Ukrainian people, everyday civilians, people in uniform is really incredible. And we owe them the resolve that President Zelensky asked for in December. And as you said, it's peace through victory. Ukraine's victory is a victory for Canada, a victory for the West, and for stability. So thank you for tuning into the Blue Skies with our guest this week, Ihor Kozak. We're going to attach some links and allow you to see my essay on this, asking you to show your resolve and your support for Ukraine in 2023. I'm Aaron O'Toole. Thank you very much. Thank you.